Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I hope you've been well over the last few weeks. Uh, the weather gets nicer and nicer, so it seems like we are in the thick of summer. Well, we've had the opportunity to explore First John, and we're going to continue doing that. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to First John chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 19, uh, working our way to uh, the end, just in verse 24. We're going to be looking at the uh, topic of uh, doubt, and as we read our passage, you'll probably notice that the word doubt uh, doesn't come up at all, and yet what John is doing is describing the experience of doubt. And so we're going to spend a couple minutes to reflect on it. Uh, we have two big buckets we'll be hanging things on. Uh, what is doubt, and how do we resolve it? We're going to read aloud, and then we're just going to jump in and uh, spend a few moments reflecting on this passage. This is 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and we are sure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to meet us in our need, bringing us comfort, uh, guidance, and wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, doubt is an important topic. Uh, Many historians and philosophers have said that the topic of doubt is actually what defines uh, the modern era. Uh, Some centuries ago, a French mathematician uh, set about to explore everything he believed, and he said, if it can be doubted, he's not going to believe it. And so he examined his belief in God, said, I can doubt that. He examined his belief in the soul and morality, he doubted that. And he even went so far, he said, I don't think I can believe anything that's even outside of myself. He doubted the external world. All he was left with was his doubting mind. And he famously penned, I think, therefore I am. He maybe more accurately should have said, I doubt Therefore, I am. It was out of this intellectual project that the modern mind and the modern imagination came into existence. There was a movie some years ago that had the title, Doubt, and had two of my favorite uh, actors and actresses, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Meryl Streep. Philip Seymour Hoffman was a Roman Catholic priest in charge of a K-12 school, Meryl Streep was a nun and the headmistress in charge of the same school. Each of those two characters was the antagonist to the other. Philip Seymour Hoffman was a modern priest. He drank red wine. He ate his steaks rare. Uh, He was lenient on the students. He was open to science, trends, and fashions. His antagonist was Meryl Streep. She was the exact opposite of that. Uh, She was a very stern and cold headmistress and fit all the stereotypes you would think. And this film was about the theme of doubt. 
Uh, Meryl Streep was doubtful that Hoffman was not who he seemed to be. Hoffman's character doubted the traditions of the church. In the very last scene of the movie, you see that the nun actually had many kinds of religious doubts. She kept them to herself. Each of these two characters in some ways represents how our culture understands the topic of doubt. One is a kind of doubt that knows no shame. Another is a kind of doubt that lives in hidden shame. The priest sees doubt as a signifier of more elevated tastes and knows that the only thing worse than being a bad person is being a backwards person. This approach is vocally suspicious of traditions, institutions, and happily embraces anything that comes across as modern or novel. The uh, opposite approach is the opposite of this. Where doubt is something that's hidden, it festers, and it remains cut off from community, even cutting off the doubter from relationships and community. John himself seems to be aware of both these groups when he's writing this passage, and as we uh, spend a couple of minutes reflecting on it, we're going to be examining these two groups of people as well, and what John has to say to them. We'll look at two big ideas here. What is doubt, and how do we resolve our doubts? So let's start in that order. What is doubt? One of the first things that John uh, tells us is that doubt is expected. This is how John puts it in verse 20. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. John uses that little word, whenever. He doesn't say, uh, if you happen to doubt or if you happen to have a lack of confidence, he says, whenever this happens. It's kind of a regular thing that goes on throughout a believer's life. It was expected for the individuals to the church, and it was even expected for the entire church to have struggles with doubts in some way. In fact, it seems that the church of Ephesus, who was the recipients of this letter, were in the thick of doubt. John begins things off in verse 19 by saying, you will know the truth and you will reassure your hearts. Those words know and reassure are in the future sense, future tense. Uh, He's saying that they haven't actually arrived at a place of reassurance. They haven't actually arrived at a place of truth, but they're in the thick of doubting. One of the things that uh, I love about John is that he's a leader of this church. He's an apostle, and he's giving people the space to have their doubts. Uh, he could easily have uh, used this as an um, opportunity uh, to tell them that they're not acting how they should have acted, that they're not getting things right. And yet the first thing out of the gate for him is to say, this is expected. And he takes it even a step further when he says, whenever our hearts condemn us. He doesn't say whenever your hearts condemn you. He says whenever our hearts condemn us. What John is doing is something that is one of the most powerful things that a leader can do. He's saying, me too. When he's looking at their weaknesses, their struggles, uh, he's looking at them and saying, me too. I identify with that. And when you're on the other end of that and everything's laid bare, you're vulnerable, uh, it's all, there's no room to hide. One of the most warming words you can ever have somebody say is I identify with you. Me too also. And that's what John is doing as a leader and apostle of this church. He goes on to describe the different kinds of doubts that they have. He says there's head doubts and there's heart doubts. Head doubts, heart doubts. 
This is what he says in verse 19. By this you shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. He's saying that they have a, something they need to work on, which is the things they believe, the truths they have. But they also have other things they need to work on. They need to work on their hearts, what they're desiring, what their confidence is in, what they're trusting in. Head doubt can be something like uh, uh, you're a, a, maybe a college student. You hear something in a, a college course, and you say, is this really true anymore? Do I really believe this? Uh, it can be thinking the Bible's less reliable It can be uh, believing that core Christian beliefs shouldn't be trusted. Heart doubt is different than this. It's saying uh, that God is not actually okay with us. That he can't be trusted. He's not good and generous. It's not surprising that the church of Ephesus had these struggles. They were living in uh, uh, the uh, the city of Ephesus, uh, which was this kind of a, a first century Sodom and Gomorrah kind of place. Uh, they had the, the uh, cult of Artemis, which was a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, they had the temple of Julii, which is uh, where the, uh, the imperial cult was first established in the eastern Mediterranean. And they had a, a struggle with a belief called Gnosticism, uh, which was a, a denial that Jesus was a, a, a pre-existent uh, deity and that, um, uh, that the material world was actually good. The world that the church of Ephesus uh, lived in uh, was not unlike our modern 21st century America. Uh, Some of the struggles we have are uh, a growing awareness of globalization, uh, a growing awareness that uh, Christianity is just one of many perspectives in the world, and our claim on exclusivity is increasingly harder and harder to maintain. Christianity is increasingly being seen as at odds with civil liberties, civil rights, and it will begin to wonder whether our ethics is actually prejudiced. Being a Christian is an increasingly difficult thing to do and gives more and more opportunities and uh, 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 challenges for experiencing doubt. This was true for the first century church of Ephesus, and it's true for us as 21st century Christians. But what John goes on to describe is what doubt is itself, and he calls it self-condemnation. Doubt involves a kind of self-condemnation that is best illustrated in the Psalms, where the authors say that they feel like they're under God's thumb. They feel like that their, their energy and their strength has been sucked dry. There's a deep unease about their place in the world and their standing before God. And while this uh, passage uh, doesn't tell them specifically what they're struggling with, uh, it does tell us that they have an experience of self-condemnation. And one of the things that I, we're left wondering when we read this passage is uh, are they actually condemning themselves for something bad? You know, maybe there's an actual sin, an actual wrong that they should feel a little bit of guilt about uh, and that needs to be resolved through repentance and confession. One of the things that's also true is that we feel self-condemnation for things that aren't actually wrong. I was thinking when I was driving uh, down here of uh, (laughs) uh, a conversation I've had many, many times uh, with people where somebody comes to me and they're kind of confessing something. And uh, you're kind of like, what is it? What is, I'm, I'm so ready. What's, what's this big thing you're going <laughs> to share with me? And they say something like, I don't like going to church. I don't like going to Bible study. I, I just don't like being around people. And you kind of, you're trying to, you're pulling, you're pulling on it. And it turns out that all this shame, all this self-guilt they have is actually just them being introverts, right? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being an introvert. God made introverts. They're good. It's part of the diversity of the world. So, there we go. There we go. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
Is that your first amen, Dave? And you're <laughs> I love it. And uh, I have this conversation all the time. We can, we can have, um, uh, we can have self-condemnation, self-guilt for things that we're actually guilty of and for things that we're not actually guilty of. One of the interesting things about uh, how John describes self-condemnation and how perhaps our culture thinks about it is that for John, self-condemnation is always a God-centric experience. It's always something that you experience in the presence of God, in the relationship of God, and having to do with your standing with God. For our culture, self-condemnation is largely a, a mental pathology. It's something that needs to be overcome. It's a psychological problem. Well, what do we do, though, with our self-condemning attitudes, our self-guilt? This leads to our second point. Not only what guilt is, what, excuse me, doubt is, uh, but how do we actually resolve it? And John has a couple ideas for us as well. The first thing first is that doubt has to be resolved in the presence of God. This is what it said in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. John is telling us if we have doubts, it's something that has to be hashed out in God's presence in some way. He uses that little phrase before him, which is a a special John kind of phrase, to refer to the acute manifest presence of God, something that you only get in God's heavenly presence. And part of what we believe as Christians is that uh, through the Spirit's mediating work, we're actually connected to God's heavenly presence, and we have access to him anytime, day and night. But what's also true, what's very profound, is that, uh, that Christ's body, his incarnated presence, is being extended into the world to the saints. That the church, as the body of Christ, is the actual presence of God in this world. And what that means, if you're wondering where God's presence is, it's not any further than the person sitting next to you. If you want to know where God's presence is, it's in the pews, uh, people sitting in the pews next to you. And what this means is we want to be a community uh, that embodies Christ's presence to each other and the doubts that people have. That means that if we're struggling with doubts, God's graciousness can be experienced in the lives and the words and the thoughts of the saints in our churches. It also means that we want to have that kind of me-too attitude that John had with uh, his church, the church of Ephesus. John was an apostle who was one of the twelve. He literally founded the New Testament church. Uh, He was literally friends with the second person of the Trinity, and he found it within himself to be able to look at people and say, me too. I think we can muster it within ourselves to have the same kind of attitude. But John goes further than that. He doesn't want people just to be stuck where they are. He wants us to change. And so the next way we experience the resolution of our doubt is a growing in obedience. This is how John says it in verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. John is saying that growing in obedience is one of the ways we experience resolution from our doubts. We might look at this passage and it might seem a little bit like a formula. John is saying if you obey God, you're going to get your prayers answered. And we have to dig a little deeper. What's happening when we look at the original language is that word because is not creating an if-then relationship. He's not saying that if, if we are obedient, then God answers all of our prayers and does everything we want. 
What he's really saying is that uh, this experience of answer prayers is construing, it's explaining, it's developing what an obedient life looks like. What John is, is telling us is that this experience of the obedient person is they're praying throughout the day, they're bringing their prayers to God, and it seems like God is just answering all their prayers. And what we're reading here is not a formula. What we're saying is that the obedient life uh, involves an experience of God's open hand and generosity to people. This leads to our, our last point, that we resolve our doubt in some way by discovering God's greatness. This is how John puts it in verse 20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. When I first read this passage, it wasn't altogether clear uh, what this meant. How does God's greatness resolve the condemnation of our hearts? God's greatness is a significant biblical theme that runs throughout the Old and New Testament. His greatness is his grandeur, his glory, his majesty, especially when compared to other things in the world. God's glory is also connected to those who have humble hearts, who are broken and weak and needy and dependent. And God's greatness is not meant to crush them or to invite comparison, but it's actually meant to be a resource that comes to their rescue. And the greatness that John highlights is actually the knowledge of God. He says God is great. He knows everything. That's kind of what he picks up on right there. And God's uh, knowledge of all things is not some philosophical point. He's not getting his philosopher's cap on. When he says that God knows everything, he's talking about the judgments that God renders of people. He says that when, uh, he's talking about the things that we think we know about ourselves, and he's talking about the things that God knows about us. And what John is doing is he's comparing the verdicts of the heart with the verdicts of God. He's contrasting these two things. And he's saying that the doubters' verdicts are that they're guilty. God's verdict is that they're acquitted. The doubter believes that there are a regret, a disappointment to God, and yet God says he delights in them. The doubter believes that they need to get their act together before God's going to come to them, and God's verdict is that he's going to give up everything to find them. And this is ultimately the hope that we have as people who struggle and doubt and wish we had more confidence. It's in the greatness of God and the gracious knowledge that he has of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great gospel, the promises of its grace. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, order our lives more deeply around it. We pray that we would be people who grow in wisdom, uh, trust of you, and a love for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.